I did tell them when I hit a million and I kind of regret that because then my son for the next like two weeks was like, but you're a millionaire, but you're a millionaire. And I was like, okay, chill out. Like, let's just talk about what a million means. Like we had to have that conversation. Listen, we're living in almost half of that. Okay. So this, it's it's not real money until we do something with it. So I think for people, when they hear a million, it's like this huge ethereal amount that we've all heard of. And so I just needed to like ground my son a little bit about what that million actually meant. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled Podcast. This is episode number 206. Clark, how's it going? What's going on in your world? Dude, doing well. We were just together in Austin the last week or so for a few days, so that was fun. Play a little golf, went boating, hung out, did some podcast stuff. Good to see each other. Yeah, it was good to see you too. We uh, connected with a bunch of people at a conference and uh, got to know some other podcasters a little bit better and some bloggers and some media companies and definitely got some some exciting things in the pipeline for the podcast but yeah it was great to see each other and we've done a few different things uh this year together we've got i think we got one more in the pipeline before the end of the year right yeah yeah correct some stuff coming up here we were talking let's talk inflation what's your take on inflation are we seeing inflation is inflation coming up yeah man it's interesting having this discussion with you and just things that we've noticed being in the different sectors we're in, whether it's labor, whether it's paying more at the pump, whether it's paying more for groceries, whether it's, you know, I went to Bucky's today, big gas station chain here, and they were completely out of their normal size cups and all sorts of things. And the one cups they did have were 20 cents more than normal. So yeah, I think we're definitely seeing a, an inflationary environment pretty much across the board. I don't I don't think if there's anything I can think of that I don't feel like I've been paying more for lately on a daily basis. What about you? Yeah, I think we're seeing it all over you. We're seeing fast food places raise their prices. I mean, there's an article here from the Costco uh, CFO. He was asked about it and he said, this is in CNBC, he said, quantifying the situation, inflation is likely to run between 3.5% and 4.5% broadly for Costco. He noted paper products have seen an increase of 4 to 8%. And he cited shortages of plastic and pet products that are driving prices up from 5 to 11%. And then I thought this quote was interesting. Later in the article, it's on CNBC again, he says, or the article says, many companies have indicated that consumers, at least for now, are willing to take on higher prices. Trillions in government stimulus during the pandemic have helped swell personal wealth with household net worth up 4.3% in the second quarter. And this article goes on to talk about how Nike uh, Nike's costs are increasing. FedEx this week announced that it will hike shipping rates 5.9% for domestic and 7.9% for other offerings. So it seems prices are going up. In this article, if you're interested, it's called Costco, Nike, and FedEx are warning there's more inflation set to hit as consumers uh, to hit consumers as holidays approach. So I think we're seeing it all over and it's not just in one industry. Yeah, totally. Clark, let me ask you this. What, at what point, you know, just maybe take some of the daily things that you pay for or maybe some of the discretionary items that you buy as well on a regular basis 
at what point would you slow that spending down or curb that spending completely? Would it be fifteen percent increase on those prices currently, or twenty, or where where is that number in your head? Do you think? I mean, I don't have too much discretionary spending that's over and above. We live a pretty simple life, but I mean, food. What are you going to do? Prices go up. Of course, you're still going to buy it. I mean, a movie ticket. I mean, here in New York, a movie ticket's like twenty dollars, so I don't pay for it anyway. Right? We'll go to Costco and get a a discount thing or an AMC movie. So I don't know if there's anything personally that. I would cut out because I just don't go above and beyond. But I can see that. I can see people spending something and saying it's not worth it. But I mean, a 5% increase on a $3 item is pretty small. You know, you're talking 15 cents or something. So I think when you, when Costco says, oh, prices are going up two, four, three, five percent whatever it is, I think most of us probably don't realistically notice, but it probably adds up if you're going to Costco and spending a couple hundred dollars. Well, yeah, I just think if you're, you know, you say you're spending a thousand dollars on something, and all of a sudden you've got to spend, you know, call it, you know, almost eleven hundred. You know, obviously that's a significant increase, but I think I think there are products out there where we are seeing ten percent double digit increases on, not just three percent on paper products and stuff. And I just I wonder where that supply and the demand and the equilibrium really lie. You know, for most people, I think in my own life, right. you know, like you mentioned, I mean, what are you gonna do about food? But at the same time, I think there's certain items and that that i would slow down buying because of price for sure maybe not buy as frequently on you know food items just because of price you know right now it's at three bucks five bucks but when you start adding it all up i think there are things that i would i would cut out or reduce if that price continued to go up i don't know it'd be interesting to see i mean wages have increased as well i mean we're feeling it across the board and in all the things we're involved with as well but that purchasing power getting to that, you know, a lot of people in, in the political spell are, are pushing for that $15 an hour minimum, but the purchasing power of that's going down drastically as prices increase too. So what is $15 an hour now might be have the purchasing power of what $10 was three years ago or five years ago or something. So things to be aware of and definitely be cognizant of. We'll keep tabs on it as, as things change and uh, we'll see how it transpires here over the next few months and a few years. Last week's episode, we had Marvin. He had a net worth of just over $1 million, most of which was in retirement accounts. We talked to Marvin about joining the military and making the mistake of buying a timeshare and balancing two careers. So if you're interested in that, go check out that episode. That's episode 205. Once again, if you'd like to engage with our millionaires, submit a question online on our website, millionairesunveiled.com. We've got several new listeners tuning into the show week after week. We appreciate you. We'd also appreciate you leaving a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. It continues us continues to help us grow the show and reach new millionaire interviewees. Without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Cecilia. Cecilia, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah. So um, again, my name is Cecilia. I'm 53 years old. I have two kids that are on the cusp of leaving the household. So I have a senior in high school and a sophomore in college. And I own my own business. I've been an entrepreneur for six years and really now trying to just focus on, you know, my kidless or my kid free life, I guess I should say, and like what that next stage is and where it takes me. So I, I feel like I've gotten a little laser focused on my finances in the last, I don't know, five, six years for sure. And just excited to see where that next stage of my life goes. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? Uh, 1.5 million. Awesome. So let's dive into the details a little bit of the 1.5 million. How is that broken up? 
Okay, so I fortunately live in a place that's seen a lot of growth in real estate. So I have about 420,000 in equity in my condo. I have a 640 or so in in an IRA. I have about 130 in bonds. I have about 16k in stock and I have about 290 in cash. Wow. Okay. So let's, let's dive into this a little bit. You've got quite a bit spread through all sorts of different categories. How, how do you have the money in the market invested? Is that mainly in in individual stocks? No. So I only have 16K in individual stocks and that's really kind of what I call my mad money. It's like me, me horsing around on, um, Robin Hood and being like, Oh, this one sounds good. So I, that money is just money that I, I'm like, I call it just play money. So I don't really trust myself enough to invest in stocks. Um, I kind of got lucky, like a friend that I worked with about 10 years ago said, you know, Hey, this stock is looking good and it's actually done, done well for itself over the years. But really it's, it's only 16,000. The rest of my money, I'm, I'm trying to just get smarter about where it's at. And so I have a huge chunk in VTI and more in VTSAX, which I think are pretty much identical funds. So that's where the, the bulk of the money is across my brokerage account and, and across my IRAs. And then um, uh, an international bond and a standard bond. And then I have a little bit in a mid cap, a little bit in a growth ETF. And I think that's about it. Okay. And then you got quite a bit in cash. How come you have yeah. so much in cash? <laughs> well, part of that cash is in my business. So that in my business checking account is where I keep my um, six to 12 months emergency fund. So it kind of just sits in that in that checking account. Um, I have a business savings account, where I slide a portion of every invoice that gets paid to me, I slide into my savings account. And at the end of the year, I use that to pay my my taxes, my payroll taxes, and to fund my set. And so there's that, that kind of grows. It gets really fat towards the end of the year. And then I flush out that savings account down to zero at the beginning of the year. So there's, there's about 150 grand in my business account right now that's gearing me up to pay taxes. I have about a hundred grand in a, in the college fund. So I'm just calling that cash. That's really just cash that's going to go away. So maybe my net worth goes down by, by a hundred grand, but I, I do have that. Maybe about two thirds of it is in 529s for the kids and a third of it's in a, in a cash savings account. And then I have another savings account that's more like the money that I want to do something with next. So it's still in a, in a um, savings account, but it's like, I, I think I want to start investing in real estate or I want to buy a car, but I put that in a different savings account. I'm kind of weird. Like I need to see everything in buckets. And so I have a bucket that's my future investment slash car slash non-investment account. I have a savings account that I started for the kids if I have to pay for a rehearsal dinner or maybe a wedding that's only got about four grand in it right now, but I put a little bit of money in in that. So that's two, yeah, that gets me to about 290 in cash. And then just a regular kind of savings account that's fluxes with like, I pay my property taxes. I pay like if I, my car needs brakes, that revolves anywhere from, I don't know, three grand to 10 grand at any time. So when you're earning a dollar, a dollar is coming into the business. How do you look at allocation in terms of keeping some in those counts, putting some in investments, et cetera? Well, I feel like I'm still learning that. Honestly, my first two years in business were were really tough for me because I didn't have a strategy like that. I just took the check that a client would give me. I put it in my savings account 
And I had a, um, a, I had and still have a standard draw that I draw every two weeks for myself. So I've kept that number fairly low because when I first left my job, I said, you know, what is the bare minimum I need to just pay bills? So I stopped saving in 529s. I stopped saving the 401k. I, I stopped a lot of things and I just made that my draw. And then over the last two years, I've maybe upped that draw to give myself a little bit of a cushion. Um, but right now what I do is I, I, I take 30% of every dollar that comes in and it goes right to my business savings. And I'm just not allowed to touch that for the year. And so what I find is that 30% bucket at the end of the year is enough to pay my business taxes, payroll taxes, and allocate some to fund my SEP. And I, and I kind of disperse it all. And as I mentioned, I flush that account down to zero on December 31st. So anything that's not paid towards the tax, I take for myself. I put it in a SEP or I pull it out. And that's my like what I get to use, put in my brokerage or put in my savings. Interesting. So just let's just talk big picture on the on the business here and finances. So what, what type of business is it if you're comfortable sharing? Yeah. So I have a training consultancy. So I actually have two businesses. One is my own. It's an S Corp. And one is an LLC that I own with a partner. And uh, since the pandemic, we're training almost 100% online. So I do management training. I help I help managers. Um, I have an online course that has done quite well since the pandemic. And then my partner and I have a, a training program. It's an annual training program that we sell to companies where we train their women for a year. So we do an online training once a month for a year. So between those two businesses, it's pretty low overhead, pretty low expenses. I don't know. There's been good businesses for me. Yeah. So tell us, I mean, we'll dive into this, but tell us where you were at income-wise prior to the company and as much as you're comfortable sharing now, where you at income-wise with these businesses? Yeah. So I had the good fortune of doubling my income in a super short amount of time. From 2012, let's just say January of 2012, um, I doubled, I almost doubled my income. So I went from right about a hundred thousand in 2012 to about the middle of 2014, I was at 205. So it was a series of two job changes that skyrocketed my income. So I got to 205. But what happened was I was only in that job for 18 months. It was a, it was a really tough job. And what I did was I realized I was going to have to leave that job pretty quickly. I just shoveled money into my savings account. And I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do but I'm going to need some money to fund it. And that money that I saved over that, let's call it the, the last year that I was in that job, funded me while I started this business and I didn't have any income. So I had I had about 10 months of expenses in my savings account when I left that job. So it was it, it's not like I was making a few hundred thousand for a long time. It was this really compressed period that allowed me to just sock some money away that helped springboard me into what's been going on for the last five or six years. Okay. And then income on the business. How, I mean, how long did it take to build that income back up if you have? So the first year, I basically ended the year where I had the same amount of money in my savings account that I started with. So everything I made just replaced my savings. So I just call that like net zero. I didn't lose money, but I made enough money to replenish my savings. The second year was a little bit tougher. I still was able to cover my expenses but it was the third, fourth, and fifth year that um, the money's flush. And it's hard for me to say what I'm making. I know that's a, that's a weird answer because I pulled the same draw. I've pulled the same draw. And so 
my my income per se has stayed the same, but the business has a lot more cash in it. Maybe I would only carry ten or fifteen thousand dollars cash in the business. I have like eighty five thousand dollars cash in the business, so I suppose I could be pulling more in my draw, but I'm just leaving that there. So if you taxed up what I pull from expenses, it's probably a hundred and twenty, hundred and fifteen grand if you if you tax up my draw, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I got you. So was it hard? I mean, my question, the obvious question is, why do you leave a $200,000 paying job to start your own? Was it the the drive to be entrepreneurial? Was it, hey, I want to do something different? I mean, what drove you to walk away from the income? I was in a really tough position. I never, ever, ever thought I would leave a full-time job. I mean, I like a paycheck. I like benefits. I had two kids to support. So, um, single mom, there was, I feel like there was a lot of pressure on me. Never, I did not have one piece of DNA in my bones that said you will be an entrepreneur. It wasn't until I got into that last full-time job where the circumstances of it were um, incredibly difficult that I started having these kind of, I don't know, just flashes of, of my life saying, I can't believe I'm spending the days of my life in this way. Like, I I can't believe this is after my whole career where I'm at and I'm making so much money. So is it worth the money or is it not? And one day I finally just said, nope, it's, it's not worth the money. And (laughs) and I don't care if I have to go move in with my parents, kids are getting top ramen. Like I, I, I just can't do it. And what I figured was I'm smart enough that if anything I try to do on my own fails, I'd be able to get another full-time job. And, and so I, I kind of had a plan a plan B and then a plan C and a plan D. And the first plan A was sell my condo. If I had to, I would just go live in an apartment with the kids and use that money. And then, you know, B was go live with my parents. I don't know what B was and then, and then get the full-time job. But it, it just turned out that I had been kind of a coach and mentor in different capacities across my career. I'd been a recruiter. So I had a lot of connections and get, getting into coaching and training as a consultant was a natural next step for me. And I, I just had a lot of contacts in the industry that I work in. So I'm not, not to say that it was easy, but the impetus was I was leaving something horrible, not necessarily going towards something I had imagined. Yeah, it makes sense. So let me push you on, on your business a little bit. So it's my thinking that when the markets are good and the economy's thriving, that coaching companies and personal mentor companies and personal coaches and business coaches do really well because there's money to pay for it. And in times where the economy struggles, so do those businesses. So curious on your take there, maybe you can tell me that's not true or what the plan is for the business going forward. Yeah. So I would agree with you in theory. I think what happens and, and the angle that I try to take with my clients is you can't afford not to develop your managers. And if it's not a budget priority for you now, it actually might be the solution for you moving forward. So I, I, I try to win that argument. I think what the biggest shift for me was when the pandemic hit, all of my, and I was coach, I was training live, um, probably 80% of the time before the pandemic, all my business stopped. So March, April, May, into June, I didn't have any revenue. And what I was trying to do was just stay top of mind with my clients, offering them free trainings, putting out free courses, staying on my social, just staying present as a giver to managers, offering value. And that was tight. 
But what's happened with the pandemic is there's more budget because people aren't paying for facilities and travel in ways that they used to for their employees. And when people are isolated at home, there's this feeling like we've got to support them. And training is is kind of a logical thing that they think of. I don't know if I've been in business long enough to ride enough waves to fully answer your question, though. Like, if the economy really dumps, am I really going to be strapped? Some of my products are really cost effective. My online course is super cost effective. And I sell that in bulk. So instead of selling, you know, one person signs up for 300, I'm trying to get you to sign up 100 people. And and so that price point helps me. No, it's really interesting. It was a great answer. And especially if you, you think about it on the on working from home side, I, th- I think that's a logical point that pe- employers say, OK, if they're, if they're going to let them work from home, I still need to make sure that they're developing as people. We don't we don't have as many in-person trainings or in-office trainings. Yeah. Or we may not send them to trainings. So, yeah, it's interesting. So let's just back it up here. We'll get more into the business. But I mean, start from the beginning. How did how did this all start? What was your upbringing, Cecilia? Yeah. So in my family, I I guess I grew up thinking we were poor, (laughs) but really that just meant there were a lot of kids in our family and my parents were really frugal. And I think they were like purposely frugal. I think my dad knew exactly what he was doing. You know, we we got to pick our Christmas toys from the Sears catalog and I got hand-me-downs from our neighbors and was shocked if I ever got anything new that wasn't handed down to me. But really what that did is it instilled in me just this sense of frugality that I think I still have today. And I, I, I try to be graceful with myself on that for times that I don't want to be frugal and treat myself or my kids to something, but also being budget conscious. So I think it was just this, the way that my parents raised us that really made an impression on me. I, I, I can remember the first time I really started to understand the power of money. I was in high school. And I wanted a video camera. So this was like when video cameras were just kind of starting to become a thing. And I went to wherever I went, Best Buy or Fry's or something like that. And I financed it. And I made payments on that video camera. And I thought that was like the greatest thing ever. And then I I realized like I loved making payments. I loved being good with my money and being like that steward that didn't abuse it. And so I think that's kind of been the theme for me is I feel like I'm a good steward of my money. I might not have always been super focused on where it was all going, but I definitely have been pretty good managing the money coming in and going out and and how it's budgeted. And even more so now, I think. Has that shifted at all as you become a business owner and a millionaire? Or has this been really the same thing you've been doing for the last 20, 30 years of your life? You know what? I never thought, I, I never added all of these things up in one column. So let's say 10 years ago, if you looked at what was just in my IRA, let's call it like 350000 I never thought I would have enough money to retire. I was like, shoot, you need like a million and a half. You need $2 million. I'm, that three hundred is never going to turn into that. And it wasn't until I started using um, the Mint app and, you know, plugging my con and then, and then I bought my condo, right. And then, and then real estate prices in my area just took off that it wasn't until I added everything together that I was like, Oh, wait a second. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like 700,000 now, or I'm at 800,000 now. And then when you get to a million, you're like, Whoa, it, it actually happened. So I think it kind of pulled me forward. I wasn't actually pushing towards it. All of a sudden I realized, Oh my gosh, I I, I can get here. And then 
I honestly can tell you maybe only in the last six months or so have I really started to allow myself to have some extra money and, and pull a little bit more than that draw and take a breath that maybe the business is actually going to survive and I don't have to be in strap mode all the time. Now I'm like, okay, I'm going to put a big chunk of my SEP. I'm going to put a big chunk in my emergency fund and a big chunk, you know, in the brokerage account. And then I could be done. I don't, I can keep some of that money. <laughs> I, I could actually take a, a trip or a vacation. And, but that's been kind of a, a recent space that I've allowed myself because I think when you're an entrepreneur, you're always kind of holding your breath. How did you make that mindset switch? switch to to be able to allow yourself to maybe spend some more of that or utilize it in different ways than maybe you were in the past? I I honestly became obsessed with listening to finance shows. I, I just getting turned on to podcasts and listening to to yours and bigger pockets and Paula Pant and I and Dave Ramsey. I mean I just started listening to so much stuff. And finally when I started hearing stories of other people or using some of the investment calculators and when I finally could project out, let's say 10 years, so I'm 53, when I could project out to 63 and I would say, you know what? You're actually going to be okay. <laughs> and you're going to be okay even if you cap what you're contributing to X amount. And so I think once I put all of those pieces together and I saw, you know what, girl, you're going to be okay. I could go retire in a, in a, a, a different country right now today, if I wanted to, and probably have enough, I could, I could do that. But just knowing that if I stick it out for 10 more years, I'm going to be all right, then I can shave a little off the top and not be such a frugal saver. Is there a goal that you're trying to reach down the road here? I think well, the only thing I think of in terms of goals is, you know, how long do I want to keep doing this, I guess. And I, I put 10 years on that. So I'm aiming for 63 to have a few things wrapped up. One of them is that the, that the house is paid off. So I overpay my mortgage to the amount that it will be paid off in 10 years. I just refinanced to a 15 year. So I'm, I'm trying to shave five years off of that. I've set goals for myself of what I want in an emergency fund, what I want in uh, my brokerage account, what I want in the IRA. So I've set goals for that. And then I've divided that by 10. And I said, this is the contribution, the minimum contribution you should make in each of these accounts for you to hit that goal. So that was kind of a recent calculation that I've done. Do you have plans to retire at any point? I have plans to be uh, short term plans to be as remote as possible. So my business, all I need is Wi Fi and my and my laptop camera to train. Um, so I'm waiting to kind of get the kids to a place where I can leave for longer increments of time. So th that's my short goal. And if I could continue to have kind of a, you know, go live in this place for a month or this country for a month and still do what I do, I don't think then retirement is as much of a, like an end game for me. Do I still want to, like, will my knowledge still be valuable when I'm out of a full-time job and a management capacity for 15 years? Like, I don't, I don't know if I'm still going to have valuable knowledge that in 10 years, I'm guessing. I don't know. Maybe I will. But I feel like the further away I am from being in a workplace, experience it, the, the less I can give advice to people. Like I'm being asked to train a lot on remote work and I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not managing a team remotely right now. I'm, I'm not full time somewhere. So it's hard for me to give a training perspective on that. So I would imagine as I get older and a little more distanced from, from the workplace, I might need to phase out, but I'm like, that's speculation. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting. So let me shift gears here, Cecilia. I'm going to get a little bit more personal with you. So I just want to read a line that you wrote in on the form um, before the show. You said, for single moms, I had a lot of guilt around being separated slash divorced on behalf of the kids. So the urge to make it up with material things, being tight with money kept me in check here. I cut so far back that we live very, very thin for a few years. No big birthday gifts or parties, no big vacations, etc. As my income went up, then I'd get more flexible. The pressure to keep up with the Joneses is incredibly hard. So just, I mean, we talked about a lot there. Maybe let's start with single moms. I know that's something you mentioned too before we started talking, but what's your advice and, and perspective there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a tough road to navigate is this separation. So a physical separation from your kids and, and you feel guilty that you're not with them all the time. And then a lot of times in most households, you know, bo- both the spouses that separate are not as um fruitful money wise so so both parties might be working with less to make do now you're paying two mortgages and two house sets of household expenses so everybody gets crunched i think the inclination is to to make that up to the kids to make them so the time we have together like let's go do something big or let's prove that we're still a family and we still are in the haves versus the have nots and i've just seen people around me who have been divorced as well, everybody kind of maneuvers that situation differently. And I just knew from the start that if I just start buying the kids a lot of stuff because I feel bad because they're in a divorced family, like this could get out of control pretty quickly. I mean, even just birthdays. So my, our, our thing was when the kids were little, you could have a family birthday one year and that meant your cousins came over and we ordered a pizza and we went to the neighborhood pool and then the next year you could invite a few friends and that might mean we're, we're spending money or we're doing a little gift bag for the five friends. But it's not like you're having a blowout birthday party every year because it just, it's not possible. Yeah. So I just think that there, there, there is pressure and guilt all wound up in that and it can have a, a pretty serious impact on your finances. And I was just really cognizant of what I was doing with the kids to just still prove we were okay. And not doing that with things that cost money. I mean, that's hard. You you make it sound like it was easy, but how do you, I mean, who, who do you turn to in that? How did you figure that out for yourself? Gosh, I don't, I don't know. I think it was just hard. Yeah, it was just hard. Tr- I trial just, and error. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a good, I have a good support network. I probably, you know, lamented to my sisters a bit. I, my ex-husband is amazing. We have a great relationship. So I always felt like I had a partner in raising the kids so there wasn't, you know, struggle or animosity in that end. But deciding, I think as parents in general, you probably doubt the things you do for your kids more often than not, just wondering if I was making the right choices or not. But now when I when I look back and I and now I can, I can do things for the kids that they're older, and they're the memory making things that I try to do now probably have more pull than when they were three or four. And maybe I'm spending money, you know, to go to Disneyland for the weekend, maybe something that they won't even remember versus now, if I'm spending money on something big, you know, we're putting memories in the memory bank. And do you remember at the time of your divorce where you were at financially? I, this is what I remember about that is I had a 401k and my ex-husband did not. So I know that half of my 401k uh, went to him and that was a bit painful. Um, I, I can't imagine it was worth too much at the time let's call it 150 or something like that. So that got split in half. 
And then we sold the house and we just, we just divided that in half. We, we lopped a little bit off the top to jumpstart the kids' college accounts. And then we just split that in half. So post divorce, I, I felt a little deflated in terms of my 401k, but I, I, our our house again had, had done quite well. I think I put $80,000 in the bank right out of the gate when I was newly separated and I needed that money to get by. So that money actually dwindled over the years down to like whatever it was, but it's not like that money is what jumpstarted all of this savings. That money was money I, I used for us to, to get through month to month. So it went down pretty low, at least in my opinion. And that was 2005 and that was 16 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds like from your story here, you talk about the divorce, you talk about small, starting the small business. And we talked about this before recording. You kind of had those two moments where you, you fell, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in your words, it said you kicked you into gear a little bit, right? It made yeah. you realize or maybe go after things a little bit more. There's nothing like, I guess, having a big moment, right? And making you, re- <laughs> making yeah. you realize that you got to change something or do something or focus on something differently. But just curious to get your take on that. I, you're absolutely right. So what those two moments did for me is they made me hyper frugal very fast. So in those two influxes in my life where I realized, girl, you're barely getting by. Okay. So that I think that just shifts a lot of things. And I, I wouldn't trade either of those situations. One was earlier and one was more recent because it reprioritized things for me. So this more recent one in, in, um, uh, the start of 20, 16 was well, I started my business in January 2016. We got really frugal really fast. And it was a good exercise in budget control that I think I needed right then because I was coming off of this big fat income. And so it, I, it was easy for me to pay for the gym membership. It was easy for me to go get my nails done and get my hair done. And instantly all of that stuff stopped. And I think that's good for anyone to be forced into an extreme budget exercise because it primed me for now when I see how the money's flowing and I see where I can put it. Um, I've still got some fairly strong reins on what I'm allowing myself to, to spend. And, and I think I needed that in both instant instances and, and maybe more people need that where you're just forced to be frugal so you can reset. Yeah. Who, who was driving in your marriage before you got divorced? Who was driving the finances or keeping track of the budget or watching the spending or the saving? Was that you, your husband, both of you? That was me. Okay. So you had no learning curve at all. Then <laughs> you had to do it on your own, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. I, I love managing money. I love good budget. I, I check my mint like two times a day. Like I, I just love numbers. I love seeing a move. I love like having a budget and seeing where it reconciles. There's just something in that side of my brain. Um, that I like me and Excel are are like cool friends. I like that. And so I always felt like I was self-sufficient. And I feel like that's probably another point that, I don't know, I won't say worries me, but that is a a caution for people who are going to experience a divorce is I just needed to make sure I had my own sea leg. So God forbid anything happened. I needed to be able to take care of myself. That, That wasn't my thought going into it, but I feel bad for people who go through a divorce and they're like, I don't know where they kept the money. I don't, I don't know what these apps do. And you're like, oh man, oh, like that's, that's a tough situation to navigate. So you've gone on this journey. You've got this great business. You've got the plans to, to essentially work remote. What are you doing to, to teach the next generation the lessons that you've learned? Um, you know, I talk about money with my kids. Um, I'm my oldest 
is I can see she's got a, a couple of my genes in her. She, um, she opened herself up a Roth. She wants to fully fund it this year. She's tracking. I, I talked to them about, um, if you save this much money from the time you're 17 till you're 25, with the difference of that versus if you saved it when you were 30 till you were 37. Like I try to talk to them about things and keep this topic of money. I sat my son down once and said, Hey, let's talk about, you know, if you ever move out, what would that budget look like? And had him plug some things into an Excel chart. Like I'm, I just try to make sure that they're at least aware enough, you know, what, what I'm doing and, and how I'm shepherding our lives and the decisions I'm making. Sometimes I'll say, Hey, we're going on this trip because this happened. Or I'll say, Hey, I got this, this business from this client this year. I wasn't expecting that. I was thinking about ways we could use this money differently. So I, I try to at least keep them a bit in the know of what's happening with me and our household money in theory. Um, and, and hopefully just through osmosis that they're catching some of that. Was setting up the Roth IRA done with your influence or is that on their own or how did that kind of happen? She set it up on her own, but we had, we had talked about it. I signed, I think I bought them some books or something that were about, you know, everything your, your your child needs to know about money or something like that. And I'm like, Hey, you guys should read this book. And I, and I, you know, I'll kind of leave it out. Well, my daughter actually did read it, you know, so she's a, she's a super curious child. She loves to read. She's a high learner. And so I think I, I lit the kindling and then she did the next. Interesting. Do you plan to, to share more details about your finances and, and net worth with your children, you know, going on in the future? And do you plan to pass that on to them or, or not so much? Well, I, I did tell them when I hit a million and I kind of regret that because then my son for the next like two weeks was like, but you're a millionaire, but you're a millionaire. And I was like, okay, chill out. Like, let's just talk about what a million means. Like we had to have that conversation. Listen, we're living in almost half of that. Okay. So this, it's it's not real money until we do something with it. So I think for people, when they hear a million, it's like this huge ethereal amount that we've all heard of. And so I just needed to like ground my son a little bit about what that million actually meant. And if I actually tried to spend that, how short it would last to cover our lives. So I'm not sure how much more they need to know. They they know how much money they have for college. They're making decisions about my daughter made decisions about where she went so she could be within that amount. And my my son, I'm sure will do the same. So I'm I'm open with them about that kind of stuff. But from here on out, I'm going to spend every penny I can. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to grind this thing down to zero. And mom is going to take lots of vacations uh, for the rest of her life. Like, I'm, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I don't need to pass this into like legacy and give my children each, you know, 400,000 when I pass away. <laughs> and I, I think that now maybe I'll change my mind when I'm older, but man, I worked hard for this. This is, this is, this is for me to be able to do things with in retirement. So, um, do they I know, know that? I probably joke with them about it. They know that I'm itching to go remote for sure. Did you worry about money along the way? Did you worry about money after the divorce? Do you worry about money now? Oh, oh, I, I definitely had worry seasons for sure. I had worry seasons. Yeah, I had worry seasons post-divorce. I had definite worry seasons for about two and a half years solid uh, when I opened this business. I mean, in tears, like, is this? am I cut out for this? I don't know how to do this. Th- th- those were prolonged periods of, I don't know if I could do this, that I feel like I'm just kind of coming out now. 
when I, when I look at the numbers on the spreadsheet, when I, when I see what's in the bank account, like, okay, so maybe you can just relax it just a little bit. Do you budget at all? I do have a budget in Excel that I look at every time I give myself a draw, which is every two weeks. And I say in there where the money is allocated to. So for instance, the, the mortgage, um, uh, all of the utilities, if, you know, if I'm paying for a gym, I, so every dollar is listed on there. And then I kind of have this slush and the slush is groceries and kind of everything else I might buy. So I don't reconcile to those amounts. But I do know when it's time to give myself another draw that I'm either at or near the amount that I said I would be. So I've gotten out of habit of reconciling every line item, but every line item is accounted for going in to that two-week pay period. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, well, let's wind down here with some rapid-fire questions, and then we'll we'll finish with some, some last words of advice. So what is your most expensive car purchase? Oh, gosh. I bought a BMW X3 on impulse um, because my car died like in the middle of the desert and I drove right, I had it like towed or I drove or something. I somehow I got myself to BMW dealership and I bought an, a brand new X3 <laughs> and uh, I did not keep that car for very long because the car, uh, yeah, there you go. I couldn't tell you how much it was, but I know the payment was like five something and I just couldn't swallow that for very long. I was like, girl, what did you do? <laughs> Got it. Okay. What about your most expensive non-car purchase and non-house purchase? I spend a lot of money on professional development. So getting a, like a leadership certification, paying for a marketing coach. I don't know if those count because those are kind of business ones. The, the most amount of money I have spent on myself that it wasn't a car and wasn't a house is I just redid my patio and I had a patio designer and a contractor. And I have a very nice 10 by 10 patio right now. And I let myself buy that. And that was the first time I think I've ever spent. It's a good answer. It's yeah. a good answer. I, I wasn't expecting you to say that. I'll be honest. <laughs> <with that. laughs> okay. What's worth spending more money on and what's not worth the money? Oh, memories always. Memories always. I, I spend money on memories. So taking a meaningful trip, uh, doing doing stuff with the kids, I will always spend money on that. What's not? There are just certain things I don't, I don't care about. I, um, a lot of commodity stuff. I, I don't, I don't care the brand of toilet paper. I, I don't care about like beauty products. I just buy what's cheapest at CVS. Like there are just things I, that aren't even on my radar to have in a nicer category, but it's probably just a lot of household stuff I don't really care about, but I will, uh, I will spend money on memories all, all the time. Okay. Let's go there. What's been your most expensive trip or vacation? Oh gosh. Um, so here's the thing. You, you get new millionaires coming on the show that are used to all the old rapid fire questions and we mix it up. <laughs> I was not the mo- most expensive. I, I think I took the kids to Maui. Once I got that, you know, uh, that, that pretty high paying job, we went to Hawaii. That, that had to have cost a few thousand dollars, three or four thousand dollars. That was probably the most I had spent at the time. I don't think any other vacations of mine have ever surpassed that. I am uh, heading down to Patagonia with my sister on a running vacation. And I have to say that that might be the most I have spent by the time I add the plane ticket onto that on a trip. And that's next year. Awesome. That'll be a great trip. Yeah. Yeah. So just closing here, I know you shared a lot of advice, but what would be your final words of advice to somebody, whether they're a single mom or maybe they're not? I mean, how have you been able to do this? What kept you motivated? I mean, what made you a millionaire? How did you become so financial, financially successful? Closing words here. 
I, I think it's the call to remember the power of compounding that you, you might be defeated looking at your balances now and thinking that, you know, what does it matter if I save an extra 50 bucks now? Or what does it matter if I, you know, spend another hundred here? But what was so powerful for me was to, to play around with those calculators and just see where, where that current balance was going to be in 10 years. And once I saw that, that inspired me to just get on my game now. Like there's, there's just, there's just a lot of fuel there, but I think we get myopic and we just say, well, that's what I've got. That's not going to do me any good. And maybe that's a little bit defeating, but to just stay, stay aligned with the power of the next, what the next 10 years or 15 years could bring you financially. Even if you stick with just small things, there's a lot of power there. Yeah. Good answer. And let me ask you about your business. I know you didn't come on to promote it, but we're happy to help you out. So where can people find you or, or learn more about what you do if they want to get in touch, if, if it's something you want to share? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So my, uh, my manager training class, the online boot camp, um, if they Google manager boot camp, Cecilia, it'll come up. Uh, manager training, Cecilia, my first name, uh, I have pretty good SEO returns. So yeah, they can scope out and, and, and see what's on, on pace for what okay. I've got going on. Awesome. That's Cecilia CEC. So thanks again for coming on net worth of 1.5, just over 1.5 million. So congrats on your success and thanks for sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate the conversation with both of you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.